Take out your Bibles with me if you would. Open them up to Hebrews, a book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. As you're getting your Bibles, opening them up, just a couple of quick things as an introduction to the book, to the letter that we're looking at. If you've been studying the Word of God for any length of time, probably been in a discussion or more, one or more discussions about who was the author of Hebrews, who wrote Hebrews. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that I don't have any idea. I've spent a total of five, ten minutes on it this week, and I've become more confused, so I decided, you know what, God doesn't say, and if he wanted us really to spend a lot of time on that, he would have told us that, so he didn't, so we're not going to spend any more time on it as a fellowship either. So moving on. The audience of this letter, though, is, I believe, of a little importance. First of all, it is written to Jewish people. The, the title of the letter given to it later is called Hebrews because it's very, very plain as we go through it that it's written to Jewish people. But the important aspect of it that I want to point out is, as we're going to see, there, it's really talking to three separate groups of Jewish people that we can all relate to, even as non-Jewish people, as believers in Christ. First of all, he's writing to Jewish believers those who have not only intellectually understood the message but received it in their hearts that Jesus is Lord of their lives and surrendered to him and him alone for their salvation. There's another group that we'll see identified as we go through the letter that are a part of the Christian church but maybe intellectually have received this knowledge of Jesus but haven't, haven't surrendered their hearts to him. And then a third group of Jewish people who have rejected outright who Jesus is. And I find that interesting and fascinating as we go through this because in a, in a group as large as we have here this morning, I would imagine that there are people that fit into all three categories here this, today. First of all, I hope that the vast majority of us together here this morning are believers in Jesus, have trusted him with our, with our salvation, given our heart to him. But there's probably a few of you here this morning who have intellectually tried to put your mind around that, but have never fully surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And there are probably a few of you here this morning who have rejected that outright. You're here today by divine appointment. God has you here today to hear from his word. Maybe you've been invited by someone else. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you've even gone along with this thing for a while, but, and you don't want to let anybody on that, you're, that you haven't received that. I pray this morning that today is the day of your salvation, that the Holy Spirit breaks through in your heart. But I think that no matter where we are in that spectrum, we're going to look at the first three verses of this letter today. And no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, I pray that we all draw one step closer in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So let's take a look at this together this morning. The first three verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. An amazing three verses. So much truth in these about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he continues to do. He starts off here, the, the author, whoever it was, God. God, first verse, first word, 
Not trying to convince anybody, not trying to lay any groundwork, not trying to move on. God, not trying to convince us of his existence. Moving forward with the, just the plain fact that he is, that he is. By the way, I think that this first word in the letter tells us who the author is. God is the author of all scripture. We've talked about that, all scripture inspired by God. But the world, if, if they do embrace a God, most of them believe that it's a God that doesn't really care a whole lot, doesn't really, isn't really involved in the day-to-day -day details of our lives. That Some people believe in this grand design. There is a creator out there, but he got the whole thing started and it just kind of spins off on its own. We see through God's word and in these verses here right away that that's not God at all. As a matter of fact, God loves us so much that he reveals himself to us. Now, first, there's, there's really three different revelations that, God, that, that people talk about, two that are real, one that is false. First revelation is natural revelation, and we see that in God's Word. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1 real quickly, we see it, how he reveals this to us in nature through creation. Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We see that all men, Every man, woman, child has no excuse to say, I didn't know there was a God. God makes it clearly evident in his creation. Now, if you'll flip over one page, perhaps, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, we see not only in his creation, but in, his, in our consciences that he gives to each one of us. It says, Romans 2, 14 through 16, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are the law themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Again, God revealing himself naturally to us in his creation and in our conscience. But most of the world still blatantly denies his existence. They do it out of, out of willful ignorance. It's, it's kind of like that guy, that fan of the team, that though they're 0-16, still walks around with that foam number one finger. You know, we're number one. Just rejecting the, the outright fact, the obvious thing in front of him. Yet so much of the world is like that. Now, if you've seen The Truth Project, incredible series on a lot of different things through defending our Christian faith. But he talks about over and over in that, he uses the illustration of the box. The box being the created universe, if you would. The material universe that we live in. That's the box. And there's really three aspects of those who do understand that there is a creator. We're going to leave with Psalm 14, that the fool says in his heart there is no God. He's outside of this discussion. We're talking about those that believe there's a God somewhere out there. There's three ways to look at the box. God is inside the box with us, doesn't exist outside the box. Nothing exists outside of the box. Everything needs to be described or explained within the box. That's one aspect. 
There's the other thought that God lives outside the box supernaturally, but doesn't coexist again with us in the box, and it's up to us to get outside of the box to find him, and that's what most religion does. Through prayer, through meditation, through doing good things, I can somehow ascend to understanding God more. Both of those are false. God supernaturally exists outside of the box, yet he exists inside of the box with us. God is everywhere. And the only way that we can understand him more, understand him at all, is as he reveals himself to us. Now, again, through natural revelation, we see that, but he goes on to show us that he goes one step further than that, and it's a huge step. Special revelation is what it's referred to. And that is speaking to us. God speaks to us. He reveals himself to us in his word. We see first in verse 2, or verse 1, I'm sorry, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, first we see that he revealed himself to us in his word through prophets, through the Old Testament, as we see. We have 39 Old Testament books that have been preserved for us to look at to study, to understand his nature and characteristics through that. We see in that, as we study through it, we have a very personal and loving and caring God. Adam and Eve, when he created them, in the garden, walked with them, talked with them, was very personal, interacting with them. Even after the fall, he continues to reveal himself to us through, through appearances to people, through miracles, through dreams, through visions, through talking through the prophets, all of the things that are recorded for us. But then, he says in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. These last days, that phrase is referred to throughout Scripture as the coming of the Messiah, the messianic period, if you would, that began when Jesus was born and continues on through today and will continue on through eternity. The next event in the messianic calendar, if you would, as we've talked about, is when Jesus returns for his church in the rapture. That's what we are looking forward to as his church. But we are in that last days period, that messianic period. And he clearly states that in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Now that does not minimize or, or prove false the previous things that we had, the Old Testament. That's why it's still so important that we spend time in the Old Testament. We go back to that. We read that. We understand it. But it proves the superiority of Christ. And that's what we're going to see as a, a theme that flows through the entire letter of Hebrews, the superiority of Jesus. It progressed, if you would, from the, the prophecy or the promise to the fulfillment. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17 that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. It's not, again, a matter of being more valid or more right. It's a matter of completeness. As an illustration, if you would, the, the, your, your children, as, you, as, you're, as they're growing from infants and they grow up a little bit and they're able to start communicating a little bit, you start teaching them letters. A for apple. B for Brett, C for cat, and you, and you teach them letters. Well, then you teach them words. And then after that, you teach them sentences. And then they start being able to read books and then understanding meaning of books. And there we see that progression from the Old Testament through and then completed in Christ in the days that he has spoken to us in his son. Notice it says, has spoken. That means past tense, it's done. A third revelation that a lot of people like to try to stick in, and many cults are based on this, is new revelation. There is no new revelation. Jesus 
is the final and full revelation of God. Not only his words, but who he is. See, understand, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. There's nothing new about Jesus. And we're going to see here in these next couple of verses how God outlines to us who Jesus is. Again, we're going to focus on what God says about Jesus, not what man says about Jesus. There's many different aspects or, or theories out there as to who Jesus is. He was a great guy. He was a, he was a, good, he was a prophet. He's a good luck charm. He's great to have around when you need him. But we're going to see, as we tear apart these couple of verses this morning, what God says about Jesus. So let's take a look. Starting verse 2, it says, In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the world. The first two characteristics we're going to look at here, he is the creator and he is the heir. He is Lord. He is the ruler. Colossians 1.16 echoes this. It says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator of all things. Everything has been created by him and for him. Romans 11.36 echoes this same thing. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him, the creator of all things. Now we need to understand that word creator a little bit. And to do that, let's go back to Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word is bara. And it's very unique because it only refers to something God can do. And that is to create something from nothing create there's nothing here all of a sudden through creation there is something not taking pre-existing particles and making something out of it creating from nothing only god can do that and because of that we see very plainly that jesus is god creating from something from nothing man talks all the time about how they've created things they haven't all they've done is assemble other pieces that god already created into a new form of something you've probably heard the scientists that, that were talking about and boasting about the fact that through all of these things that they've discovered, they feel now that they can create man the way God did, from the dust of the ground. So they challenge God to a contest. And God accepts the contest, and he says, all right. And so they get, in, they get down on the ground, they start gathering the dirt into a pile, and God says, oh, 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 oh get your own dirt. <laughs> create it from nothing. Only God can do that. Now, interesting, the end of verse 2, it says, through whom also he made the world. That word world is not the Greek word that's normally used to describe our world or our universe. That Greek word is cosmos. That's where we get what we call cosmos, the universe. The word instead, and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, is ahion, the Greek word. And what that means literally is the ages. And again, if we look back at Genesis 1.1, we see that very plainly. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at first glance, we see that that's just talking about the physical, heavens and the earth. But a closer look, we see that it says, in the beginning. That means God had to create time. Before that verse, beginning hadn't happened yet. 
So beginning, he created time. He created energy. He created mass. He created everything that's needed in order for us to be in existence right now. And by the way, he did it without effort. He just said, be, and it was. Just by his spoken word. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God, fully God. Not only the creator, he's the heir of all things, it says. He is the inheritor of all things. All that he created is is deeded to him. We see that outlined in Revelation chapter 5. When God says, holding the title deed to the earth, saying, who can, who can open this? Who can open these seals? And John, when he's, this is being re- revealed to him, he starts weeping because no one steps forward. But then it's told to him, don't, don't weep. Look, look. And he points to the, to the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. Jesus steps forward and takes the title deed and reclaims what is his. See, unfolding Revelation 6 and beyond, as he unfolds the scroll, the tribulation pours out on the earth and he reclaims what is truly his. King of kings, Lord of lords, he is the ruler, the heir of all things. Now, just a pause here before we move on from this. Many, many people, even Christians, see Jesus as Savior, but stop there. We need to understand that Jesus is our Savior, yes, and praise God for that, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but he is also Lord. And it's not just that we make him Lord. We need to make him Lord of our lives, but he is Lord. I, I, I can't believe that somebody would actually say this out loud, but I've heard the quote. Somebody once said, I will never bow my knee to a Jewish carpenter. Yes, you will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord and Christ. Yes, he came first. We see it outlined beautifully for us in in the word that he did come as a poor carpenter. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. He owned nothing. Yes, he did that. So he could perfectly relate to us. He could, he could live this life. But make no mistake, he is returning as the sovereign ruler and Lord of all. And he will rule and reign forever. Is he Lord? Is he on your throne of your life? We all need to inspect that from time to time. Because though we, we, we might put him there at times, other times we say, hey, scoot over. no. He is Lord of our lives. Now as we move on, we see more revelation of who Jesus is. Verse 3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Next we see what God says about Jesus' character, His very nature, His form, His substance. We talked about the fact that Jesus is fully God, but here we get into an aspect of Jesus that really it's hard to grab a hold of. It really is. It's impossible to fully grasp. Jesus is fully God, but here we say it's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. The radiance, first of all, the radiance that the light going forth is what that word describes. And it's 
it's as though Jesus is the full manifestation of God. It tells us in Corinthians or Colossians 2.9, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He expresses God to us so that we can just begin to understand who God is. And the only way that I can come up with that I've found to describe this even a little bit, because again, this is going to fall so far short of the, the totality of it, but the sun outside. We're blessed here in Arizona. We get the sun most of the time. Most of us think that's a blessing. I know some don't, but we get the sun. And when we walk outside this afternoon, we're going to see the brightness of the sun, the light that comes from the sun. We're going to feel the warmth that comes from the sun. And the sun doesn't exist without the light and the heat, but the light and the heat that we feel isn't the sun. Does that make sense? Probably not. It still doesn't make sense to me as I'm saying it out loud fully. But understand that without the, without the light and the heat, the sun doesn't exist. But they're two separate entities. They can't be separated from each other. Again, we, we try to explain this in totality. We can go a little crazy. I, I understand that, so I'm not going to try to go any further with it. But it's important that we understand if we explain it away, if we say, well, I can't have both of these things, we can, we can lose our salvation. We can lose what we have in Christ because he is fully God. Yet there is a triune God, and we see that laid out in our verses. The author is clearly stating the deity of Christ in the plurality of God in what he's talking about. But one quick thing before we move off of that. Jesus is the radiance. We are the reflection. Jesus radiates the light, and we are to reflect that light. We are to be lights in this dark world. It's not our light that shines. It's his light shining off of us. Just like, again, the picture of the sun and the moon. The, the moon has no radiance of itself. It only reflects the light from the sun. And like us, if the moon, if its light is dim or dark, it's because the world has gotten in the way between the sun and the moon. The same is true with us. If our light is dimming, if our light is out, it's more than likely because the world has gotten in the way of our relationship with Christ. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It says an exact representation of his nature. Well, we move on, verse 3, and we see another characteristic of Jesus. It says, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the sustainer of all things. Not only is he the creator not only is he the heir and the exact representation, but he's the sustainer of all that he has created. That word sustainer is an active role, a sovereignty. It's, it literally means to be moving it along to its final destination. Not just holding it up, but moving it along. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds everything together. Science, again, is baffled by certain elements about the world that we live in. They can explain it, but they cannot explain how it could have possibly happened. Do you realize that if we were any closer to the sun, we would burn up? And if we were any further away from the sun, we would freeze. 
we are in perfect position to the sun. If we were any further away from the moon, we would be flooded with water the entire earth twice a day because of the way the tides and everything work. But we are perfectly positioned with the moon. If we had any more gravity than we'd have, we'd all be squished. If we had less, we'd be floating around instead of being able to walk. All of this stuff perfectly, exactly the way it needs to be for us to exist here. Science can't explain that. I can. <laughs> Science calls it the laws of nature. Well, we know who wrote the laws of nature. We know who upholds the laws of nature. And by the way, we know who can interrupt those laws anytime he wants to. We, we see beautiful examples of that through the, through the Old Testament. Again, Jews running away from, from Egypt. They're finally free. They get out. But all of a sudden now the Egyptians change their mind. They're chasing them. They get to this big body of water. What are they going to do? God says, hey, no problem. I'll just suspend that law of nature for a moment. Whoosh, spread the water. Go on through. Joshua having a huge victory in battle, battling the enemy, taking the ground that God told him to take. He looks up and he says, man, it's, getting, it's gonna be dark soon. God, help us with this. Jesus said, no problemo. I'll stop the sun for a while. I'll suspend that law for a little bit. Go ahead, keep going. Hezekiah. Isaiah comes to him and gives him a promise. He says, give me a, give me a sign. Give me a sign to, to show that God loves me this much that he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. And Isaiah said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll have the sun move forward 10 steps on the, on the, the stairs that are there. And he says, well, you know, that's kind of easy. Could you have it go back 10 steps? Hey, no problem. We'll suspend that law for a moment. Back up the sun. Jesus in the boat with his disciples. Sleeping in the front of the boat. The storm's going. Everything's crazy. Everything's going on around him. They wake him up. Don't you care? We're dying. He gets up and he says, be still. Bam. Suspends all the laws of nature right there. Boom. Stops the storm. Immediately sends it away. Upholds it all. Upholds all things, it says. That word things isn't there in the, in the original Greek. It's, he upholds all, all. Again, he created all, like we said, time, energy, he, but he also upholds all as well. Before, again, as he created, before there was nothing, after everything, he upholds it all. And that can be such a comforting thing in this time of such uncertainty, knowing that he controls all, not just physical matter, but he controls emotions. He controls things as it's moving through. And as I was studying this week, I have to tell you, and please don't think I'm crazy or I've gone off the end, but as I was studying this week, we have something very uncertain coming up this week. Tuesday, there's a lot of uncertainty around. And God revealed to me the outcome of Tuesday. So you can all go to bed and you don't have to stay up late on Tuesday because when you wake up Wednesday morning, Jesus will be on the throne. He will still be upholding everything on Wednesday morning, regardless of who gets elected. He will still be in control. 
he will still be the one that is maneuvering and holding everything together. Nothing is beyond his reach. Nothing is outside of his control. And nothing is beneath his care. I got an, I got an email this week from Alan Peggy Horton. Many of you know who they are. Many of you pray for them, and I so appreciate that. They are the couple that goes over to China three, four times a year taking Bibles and study materials, and their ministry is to equip the churches over there, the small home churches with the pastors, with Bibles and materials to teach God's Word, and they actually train pastors over there for the, the underground church. And we support three of those pastors and, and their churches. And what an incredible ministry it is. But they're over there right now in China, so be praying for them, Al and Peggy, and the work that they're doing. But I got an email that described the fact that they had, there's four of them that were traveling in this group, and they had a, a, one of the cars that they traveled by train in. It was a four-person car, and they were all scheduled to be in that, on that train. Well, their train got moved up because the one that they were supposed to be on was overbooked, so they moved them to an earlier train. And for whatever reason, I don't remember exactly, but only three of them could make it there, and the one that couldn't was their interpreter. So there's going to be one extra person in the car with them. It's a Chinese national that's put in the car with them. Wouldn't it be great if they could have shared Jesus with them? So it seems so happens that uh, he spoke English. (laughs) Just coincidence, I'm sure. And... They were able to talk to him about Jesus. And you know what? He left with a Bible when they got it. God is in control of all of those things. If, if you saw that Operation Christmas Child video earlier and you weren't moved, I don't know what will move you. <laughs> but tell me that's a coincidence. She opens that box and there's a pair of shoes in there. Jesus, Jesus is in control of all things. And he cares about all of the details of each one of our lives. That little girl, she, he, he, he knew she needed shoes. He knew it months before when that box was packaged here in the United States before it was sent over there. That's how our God works. No expert or doctor or lawyer or financial advisor knows more about what you need than he does. And none of them can provide what you need better than he can. He will sustain us through any trial. Again, he will never allow us to go through those trials knowing that we can't get through it. He will sustain us through that if we allow him to. And if we allow him to, it will result in the the end result that he wants, that he knows what is best. Everything will work out for our good and his glory if we allow it to. He holds it all together. I love that. Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, science can't explain the fact that the atoms are designed the way they are. They look more and more into the smallest elements of life that we know into the atom. They can't describe it. They can't explain it. The like charges that are in there, protons, neutrons, electrons, the, the like charges repel each other. There's no way that they should be able to exist together in the atom. That's why when the atomic bomb blows up, it's when those things are, are finally let loose. And the, the opposite charges, they attract. Many of you married people can say amen to that, right? 
but they should collide at such a speed that would also cause an explosion. And they can't, for, they can't describe it. They call it atomic glue. That's what holds it all together. That's what they, they describe it as. Well, Colossians 1.17 is atomic glue. Jesus holds it all together. Every little atom. And he'll hold together your situation too, if you let him. If, if your marriage is falling apart, he will hold it together if you let him. Husbands, wives, do what the word tells you to do. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, honor your husbands as, as the church honors Christ. You do that, and you trust in him to hold it together, he will. He will. Emotionally, you're a wreck. You're beside yourself. Get into his word and trust in him, and he will hold you together. He will. By the word of his power, there's power in his word. Be in it and trust in it. By him, all things were created in the past. They consist in the present, and they will be reconciled in the future. In him, in Jesus. We see as we get ready to close here, the last part of the verse, another couple of aspects of him. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here we see the heart of our Lord. Because the creator, the sustainer, the heir, God himself had to become our sin bearer. You see, God, holy, righteous, just, cannot exist with sin. We could not, in our state as sinners, be with him eternally. It couldn't happen. Because of his very nature, it can't. And we know from the word that the wages of sin is death. So though Jesus spoke everything into existence, and everything is sustained by the word of his power, in order for us to be cleansed, in order for us to be reconciled to God, he had to die. 1 John 1.7 says, his blood cleanses us from all sin. It's, it's staggering to think about that this creator, this sustainer, this heir of all things that we have been talking about, Jesus Christ, God himself became our sacrificial lamb. To die in our place. I, I find it hard to even try to illustrate what this looks like. I've heard it illustrated before, and I'll do my best, but it still falls so far short. We used to have the newcomers dinners at our house before we moved the church here, and we had a, out on our patio, we'd have the t time out there and we'd have the dinner and we had these trash cans that were set up in several different places that after people got done eating, they would throw the, you know, the leftover chicken and potato salad and stuff in. And one of my jobs afterwards was to tie up all of the bags that were in the trash cans and throw them into my big trash can and take it out to the curb. Well, one time, and it was about June, so it was getting really warm outside, I missed one of the trash cans. And... It did get taken over by my big trash cans, but it hadn't been emptied out. And after a couple of weeks, the smell was horrible. I'd walk out in my backyard and I'd go, man, one of my neighbors really needs to take care of, you know, 
something's, you know, of course, it's their fault, it's not, not mine. Well, I went over, and it was, it was after a couple of weeks, and I got, went over to get the trash, and I noticed what had happened. And inside this trash can that was sitting back there that I literally almost couldn't get to, the smell was so bad, was several inches thick of maggots. Just crawling and swarming and just, I mean, ugh, yeah. You got the picture? <laughs> Anybody ready for lunch? No. <laughs> but it, was, it, it had to be the most disgusting thing I've ever seen or smelled. I mean, it was just, ugh. Now, what if my heart was moved with such compassion for those maggots? that I couldn't bear the thought of them being tied up in a plastic bag and taken to the dump. And so I start yelling at the maggots, you got to get out of this bag because this bag's going to the dump. But they can't understand me. They're not, they're not listening. They, don't, they, they have no intention of listening to me. And all of a sudden I realize the only way that this is going to happen is if I become one of those maggots and I get in that trash can with them. Well, let's up the ante a little bit. All of a sudden, because for whatever reason, I understand when I get in that bag full of maggots, they're not going to listen to me. And they're going to they're they're kill me. But that's the only way I can save them. That doesn't even begin to describe the difference between what Jesus did for us. That gives us a little bit of a picture, but it still falls so far short because we need to understand that there was nothing Jesus needed when he's in this perfect unity with God, the triune God in heaven. He doesn't need us to complete him. It was perfect there. Yet he knew that if he didn't personally take care of our sin problem, we would spend eternity in hell separated from him. And he loved us so much, he couldn't bear that thought. So he stepped out of heaven and came to this stinky, smelly garbage bag on earth, full of all of our sin, all of our hatred, all of our selfishness. And he became one of us. And he lived a life, a perfect life, and he died in our place just so we could spend eternity with him. It's beyond comprehension, isn't it? I, we, I wrote the lyrics down because I knew I wouldn't remember them right off the top, but when I was going through this, I was singing that song, that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How could we give anything less than all we have to him because of what he did for us? How, how could we possibly say that that's off limits to you, God? I'll give you this much, but not everything. When he gave everything for us? Don't, don't miss the significance, too, of what's said in this verse. It says, when he made purification of sins, he made it. It's done. The work is done. And then it says, he, after he had done that, he sat down. He sat down because the work is completed. Another total act of arrogance on our part would be to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to add to that. We can't add anything to it. It's completed work. He did it all. He paid it all. We can't add anything to it. 
If, if you are here this morning and you have never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him and Him alone, please hear what I'm saying. You are in that situation far worse than those maggots in that garbage can because we all were there. And there's no way that you can save yourself. You can't climb out of that bag. But Jesus came and he took care of it for you and you simply need to trust in him. Give your heart to him. And when you do that, it's just simply a matter of responding to the Holy Spirit prompting your heart right now that's bearing witness to what I'm saying. There's nothing, there's no special thing that you need to say, no magic formula. It's just going before the Lord and admitting that you're a sinner and that you need him and surrendering to him. But when you do that, you receive eternal life. You are forgiven of all of your sin. Past, present, future, everyone. And I, I trust that most of us in this room have done that. But there's an just a couple of more, they're just amazing. It gets better. Because it says that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He's still there. And do you know what he's doing right now? He's interceding for you. He knows what is going on in your life. He knows exactly what is going on. People sitting around you right now might not. People closest to you might not know deep down what you're going through. He does. He knows exactly what you're going through and he's interceding on your behalf right now. The creator of the universe, the one who holds it all together, is praying for you right now. It tells us that in his word, Romans 8.34. But not only are we forgiven and not only are we experiencing this incredible relationship with him, but we also find out in Romans 8.17 that we are fellow heirs with him when we believe in him and trust in him. Not fellow gods, not fellow lords, but fellow heirs. We will rule and reign with him for eternity. He allows us to be a part of his eternal kingdom. We're singing earlier, you are amazing, God. That doesn't begin to describe it, does it? But the amazing fact is that some people still reject it. And again, if that's you this morning, don't fight it anymore. Don't kick against the goads any longer. Surrender to Jesus. Just give your heart to him and trust in him. You won't be mistaken. You won't be sorry. And now as we get ready to close, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. And I pray that as as we do, as we prepare our hearts for this, that this would be a time of reflection for all of us. It's important that we do that, that, that we reflect back over what we've talked about today, about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And if, if there is areas in our life where we haven't allowed him to be Lord of our life, let's give him that this morning. If, if there's areas where we've allowed the world to get in between us and him, let's deal with that this morning. And, and all that matters is just confessing it repenting of it, turning away from it, and turning back to him. I'm going to have the ushers come forward and the worship team come up now, and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we are truly amazed by you. Lord, we're blown away by the fact that you are who you are and you've done what you've done. 
And Lord, I pray that you just go through our hearts this morning. And if, if we've never fully embraced you as creator and the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you truly do hold all things in your hand and you are our Savior. Lord, that today we would, we would just lay that down before you. Lord, what a, what a treasure your word is. And we ask that it, it goes through us right now. That in this time, you would just meet us right where we are. Minister to us. Reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the trays are going to be distributed now. There's two cups, one inside the other, the bread in the bottom, the juice in the top. Please make sure you grab both of the cups as they go by. Again, when we think of what he did for us, how, what other response could we have but to surrender all to him? Just like, just like Peter said, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're, you're the creator. You're the sustainer. You know where we're going. You know how we're going to get there. I surrender to you. And it's all because of what he did for us. And it's that that we remember this morning. Our Lord, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it and he gave it to the disciples and he said to them, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Lord, we do remember today. We, we thank you that, that you told us to do this, to, to get together regularly and to remember, because, Lord, you know us so well, and we so often quickly forget. Lord, this morning we, we remember not only who you are, but what you have done. We, we embrace you as our creator, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Savior, our Redeemer. Lord, we ask now as we, as we go out from here that we go out rejoicing in what you have done in our lives. Lord, that we, that we can't wait to share with others what you have done for us and what you've done for them if they will only just receive it. Lord, give us a passion to share your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all